Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I... What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, and welcome to Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate, and today I'm joined by Slate's features director, Jeffrey Bloomer. Welcome, Jeff. Hi, Sam. I believe this is the first time we've been in the same room since the pandemic began. I know. It's very exciting. You're all going to hear some serious chemistry here. It's very exciting. So today we are spoiling uh, the movie Halloween Ends, which is the, uh, I guess, the final part of David Gordon Green's Halloween reboot trilogy. There are a lot of nouns to apply to that. Um, This finds us sort of Back in the groove with Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and uh, The Shape, as Michael Myers is often known. Um, but let's start off, Jeff, with what you thought of the end. So you know that I'm a long-suffering Halloween fan. Um, I'm not quite, like, going to Michael Myers festivals and, like, you know, doing Reddit cosplay and stuff. But I have seen all 14 movies, I believe there are now, some of them more times than I care to admit on the record. And I kind of, like, even I at this point have some franchise fatigue because, like, the last movie, literally, they were just introducing new characters every 20 minutes in order for them to be killed off 10 minutes later. And it was just it was so listless. And so going into this movie, I really did not, I didn't know what to expect. Like, she's already killed Michael Myers once in the past in movies that are ignored by this one. And this movie throws a bit of a curveball. It at least does something different. And I'm grading on a curve, but I appreciated that. We will get into what I mean in a minute. What did you think? It stinks. I really didn't like this movie at all. This movie, for me, was so bad that it made me like the previous uh, movie in the trilogy, which I also did not like more, because I feel like that at least had ideas, although they were bad ideas. And this one really feels like it has none. It's trying to do something different, which we will get into shortly, but I just don't think it comes off. And then it sort of forgets about that thing like an hour into it and I mean I just sort of feel no compelling reason for this thing to exist other than that the first one did well and somebody clearly at some point did what if what if two more um and so they did two more I like that we disagree somewhat I I cannot claim that it totally works but I was delighted that it was not the same movie again so we should start by saying because we're it's a spoiler special we're going to spoil the whole thing and probably the biggest spoiler for this movie is that Michael Myers I don't think even shows up apart from a sort of flashback to the previous movie is for like 45 minutes into it and does not kill somebody until an hour into an hour and 51 minute movie. So it's definitely throwing you for a loop there. This is not a movie that's just like, what's another excuse for Michael to go around and like stab some more babysitters? The opening setup kind of gives us that because it it, uh, flashes back to Halloween 2019 which is the movie set in the present day, but it goes back a few years. It's Halloween night. This uh, middle-aged couple are going out to a party. They've gotten a last-minute babysitter who's this 21-year-old, sort of, I guess, promising engineering student, and he is uh, called uh, Corey Cunningham, played by Rowan Campbell, 
and he is just supposed to look after their bratty little boy for an evening. Uh, he makes a mistake of, of showing the kid the thing uh, for some reason, which is a little, uh, obviously, tip of the hat, um, in addition to the tip of the checkbook that has allowed all these movies uh, to happen to John Carpenter, who directed that movie in the original Halloween. And basically, the kid decides, hey, let's play hide-and-seek. Um <laughs> Which, which you know is going to end badly, but you don't really know how it's going to end badly. He ends up uh, locking Corey in the attic, um, saying Michael Myers is going to come and get you. We think clearly Michael Myers is probably going to come and get one of them, maybe the kid. Um, but Corey freaks out, starts kicking at the door. This attic, by the way, is up several flights Somehow this suburban house has like nine flights of stairs in it and a big sort of empty circular stairwell. Um, Corey freaks out, is like kicking at the door, finally gets it open. The door swings open, knocks little Billy over the railing. He plummets 115 stories to his death just as his parents are coming back in the door. He's dead. There's blood everywhere for reasons. Corey is also holding a knife at this point. Um, and basically his parents are like, you murderer. And so... That's that's the opening. This this child has been killed not by Michael Myers, but by the fear of Michael Myers, essentially. Yes. And like this little kid earlier in the movie is like, well, Michael Myers doesn't kill little children. He kills babysitters. And, you know, from that moment that that kid's going to eat it one way or another. And I think that, like, I actually liked this opening sequence. I thought it was a, like Danny McBride and um, David Gordon Green, the writer and director, respectively, among others who wrote it. It seems like there's five screenwriters on this movie or something need to stop relying on the trope of a little kid who like is like suddenly extremely profane out of nowhere but like otherwise I thought that this sequence was like pretty effective and like surprising and it should have been the clue right there I noticed that the opening credits were blue like a departure from the um, normal Halloween credits and that's the other movie that had those was um, Halloween 3 which season of the wish, which is the movie in which famously Michael Myers does not appear mm. um, and that doesn't quite what happens in this movie but it Probably is the first clue that things are not going to proceed as we expected. All right, so let's sort of talk about where we go after that. That's our little 2019 prologue. Then we are um, sort of up to the present day. Michael Myers is sort of in theory still uh, quote unquote dead as he was at the end of the last movie. We know, of course, that's not going to last. But let's where where are we finding everybody at this point? Judy Greer is still dead. I guess we can reveal that. Yes. So Judy Greer has played Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, um, Laurie Strode's daughter, and she was killed at the end of the last movie after this mob had sort of pummeled Michael to death. And so now we're like a few years ahead, and Laurie Strode has like sort of graduated from being this like post-slasher warrior woman into like kind of like a funny, zany, grief-like kind of person. I don't know. She like is writing a memoir, and we're hearing in voiceover her describing Michael and sort of like cliched uh, memoir terms and now she lives with her granddaughter Allison and their relationship had been sort of frayed in the other movies and now it seems like they're doing pretty well Allison's working as a medical assistant Laurie Strode just seems to be kind of like a wackadoodle around town and basically we kind of I had initially thought that we were just going to have like a cold open and not really come back to that character but earlier in the movie we see Corey come back um, and he is being tormented by some like local teenagers um, all of whom you know are going to be absolutely filleted based on how they uh, are treating him. Laurie Strode sort of spots this, and she's like a defender of the bullied. And she goes up, and she like kind of scares the kids away uh, after they like knock him down, basically, and then slashes their tires with him, and then brings him to the granddaughter's medical clinic because quite clearly she's up to like kind of matchmaking. 
Right. There's a moment where the twist or the sort of development in this movie, in the second one, as you mentioned, was sort of all about like mob justice. It's like the fear of Michael Myers turns the entire town into killers. In this case, the town has sort of weirdly turned on Laurie Strode and like blames her for Michael Myers' existence. They, um, one of the the victims from the last movie, who uh, the daughter of a woman who got, I guess not par- not killed but paralyzed, sort of blames her and is like, you know, it's your boogeyman. You did this. Other people kind of blame Laurie for somehow like leading Michael on until he snapped. Um, Corey at one point says like, well, you know, they couldn't find your boogeyman. So they made me the boogeyman where boogeyman gets it a lot in here. And in that scene where he's getting tormented by the the teens outside the drugstore, um, she comes to his rescue and they, you know, they sort of like, oh, look, you know, it's Laurie Strode. She's still sort of a famous local celebrity. Don't be the victim of a serial killer in a small town because everybody will, will know who you are. You know, it's the psycho and the freak show. And then there's a sort of back and forth over like which one of them is the psycho and which which one of the freak show. So I guess if the movie has a thesis, it's that. The movie comes back to that. And I think that you're right that like it's trying to riff on the last movie's idea about like a grief contagion or like a, a trauma contagion, basically, like infecting these people and taking it to like the next level, I guess. Yeah, Laurie uses the word like infection and sickness like in her memoir a lot. There's a, the, at the beginning of that scene when they're tormenting Corey, he like has a glass bottle of chocolate milk in his hand for some reason and he like squeezes it. He's so upset that he squeezes it until it breaks and it like cuts his hand open and that's sort of like the, uh, you know, something where you get like a little scratch and then you somehow, you know, you it seems like nothing, but then you, you get like, you know, full body sepsis or something. It's like that sort of, that's like the entry for the infection that will take him over. Right. It's a little perhaps on the nose. They go to the clinic and he starts flirting with the granddaughter and there's instant chemistry there. And you can tell that those two are going to be sort of a driving force in the movie. And the thing is that's going on with them is like pretty quickly after they start seeing each other, I think that um, Laurie Strode starts to suspect something actually is off with Corey. Does that happen right away or is it shortly after the first meeting? At first she's like, hey, you know, you should meet my granddaughter. And she kind of sets them up and like pushes them together. But then they, um, I guess they eventually like go out to a Halloween party. It's still a few days before Halloween, but they go out to a costume party at a bar. Um, Corey runs into the mother of the boy. He's accidentally killed. Everybody recognizes him as the guy who killed the boy. Um, so he runs into the mother uh, who's just like out, you know, drinking by herself. I guess we, we sort of intuit that the, the couple has, you know, split up. Um, they get into a fight. He sort of runs off and that's when he's kind of really starts to go off the rails. And I think that's when he ends up knifing a homeless man to death under a bridge. Yes. Basically what happens is that he's walking home. He storms out of the party because the mother confronts him and calls him a murderer and so on. Kind of echoing the way that people have been confronting Laurie Strode. Um, and then... They confront him at the edge of a bridge and through a back and forth in which he finally tries to stand up for himself, they end up throwing him over the bridge. It's not a very steep fall, so he's just knocked out on the ground. But nevertheless, it's kind of an unpleasant scene. And then all of a sudden, this like unseen figure drags him into a storage. Yeah, we've gotten this ominous shot of this like culvert leading into a hill before. Um, and I think there's even like a POV shot from inside it. So we know like Michael's in, it's been four years, but somehow Michael's just been like living in a like a drainage pipe for four years. Yeah, it's funny because like in the last movie, they were sort of going toward this direction where Michael was superhuman and it really did not seem like you could kill him anymore. And in this movie, even though he came out of the mob justice in the last one enough to kill Laurie Strode's daughter, he seems to have been badly battered and just like 
like living as like a, the literal shadow of the town. And there's there's a bit. I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Eventually, Corey, um, who you know again seems like this kind of unimportant character, then sort of ends up like taking on both literally and figuratively, sort of taking on Michael. Meyer's mantle and there's a point at which he sort of you know kills somebody accidentally then he like kills many people on purpose and there's a point at which he goes to Michael drags um, I guess his cop ex-boyfriend like tricks him back into the culvert sort of lures him down there and then it holds him up and says to Michael like I want to see how you do it so then he holds him down while Michael like you know stabs him with the iconic knife Um, and then Corey really decides to commit to the bit at that point. And the, there's a point at which he says to Michael, like, I need, you know, I came back because I need something that you have. And then there's like this sort of pretty funny, in a, at least in a different context, like a uh, long shot through the uh, through the culvert where you see Michael and Corey sort of like staggering back and forth, like out of frame, like wrestling with each other. You know, they wrestle, they go out of frame, they come back in. It's like this long sort of slapstick bit. And then eventually um, you find out that Corey has like... St- taken his mask basically to put it on and, and obviously like one of the things in the movie is like you never see Michael without the mask it was never the what like the one thing that will deter him from killing somebody is adjusting his mask when it's almost pulled off like that's it's very important so the fact that like someone else can take it off and wear it is um there's this scene at the beginning which sort of made my blood run cold where I think um Allison or maybe your friend is giving someone a tarot reading and says like oh whatever this card is it means like an old chapter closes and a new one begins and i'm like uh, are they setting up like another trilogy <laughs> what's going on but they're really they're just you know for the sake of this movie setting Corey up to be sort of briefly the new uh shape yeah and so like you said they go out of their way to code this kid as like pretty innocent as someone who's been corrupted by the town the chocolate milk stuff and he just generally gives kind of a tremulous performance and seems kind of broken up um and he at first kills a homeless man who confronts him sort of by accident and then it sort of escalates at the same time as he is starting a romance with Allison. Which goes very fast. It does. But they really do. I think the two have like decent chemistry. And it was not the least believable part of the movie um, that the two of them would uh, connect the way they do. But it's really strange. It has a really weird like sort of 70s vibe to it. They're like riding around on this old motorcycle. And it, like so much of the movie, no one's being killed. And it feels like a much different sort of thing than a Halloween movie in a way that... Again, I found that altogether unpleasant, although I imagine most fans and most people with taste will disagree. And I, uh, it goes on for a while like this, but you do start to see flashes of him kind of having some issues. He confronts a police officer at one point that was also dating Allison in a kind of frightening way. Um, and he's the one that he ends up killing with Michael in the sewer. And he's got his whole weird, uh, like, mother thing, too. Oh, yeah. Almost can't even remember that. But he lives with his parents. Corey lives, still lives with his parents, including a much a very overprotective, shall we say, mother. And if there are tones of her loving her son a little bit too much, of course, later in the movie, they become explicit. She says at one point, like, is come home late or something. And she's like, well, if you're not a good, like, boys who aren't good, don't get any custard. (laughs) It's really, uh, it's quite bizarre. Um, But I think that, like, it all pretty much works to build him up to become He's the main sort of antagonist, if also victim of the movie. And at first he's killing people, including like Allison's boss at the doctor's office. He wears a scarecrow mask to the Halloween party. And at first that becomes his mask. And so he's going around and killing people um, in typically brutal fashion. Although this movie, I would say, was just a touch less gory than the last one until the end. I I mean, I'm not like a horror fan of the sort that is like will 
you know, asked like, what are the kills in the movie or something? But I, I will say just from that point of view, the kills in this movie are a lot less gory, but also like less inventive than the previous. I think the previous movie was the one where somebody gets like stabbed to death with like a newel post from a stair case or something like that. And this is just, he runs somebody over with a truck at one point. I mean, he blow torches people. He does some things in this. Yeah. I'm not a, ooh, what are the kills? Are the kills gruesome enough person either? And so I appreciate that this movie was a little bit less sadistic. So we are getting very rapidly toward the ending because like we say, though, this movie is fairly long. Not a ton happens in it. But I guess we should take a moment and come back to get to that. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. So we are approaching the ends of Halloween ends. How do we end up with sort of the final confrontation, which, you know, does eventually involve Michael Myers. So, yes, Michael Myers does show up in the movie in which is supposed to be the last movie in which he appears, which it certainly won't be. As we mentioned earlier, Laurie Strode at some point sees the uh, evil in Corey and like realizes that something's going on with him and starts warning Allison about him and saying she needs to stay away from him. There's a really bizarre scene in which Corey falls asleep in the abandoned house where he accidentally killed the kid. And Laurie Strode is just there, like with a chair against the wall, banging the chair against the wall. Yeah. Being, I don't even remember what she says, but it's something like, you know, I know what you are. I know what you're doing. She does a lot of talking about like the nature of evil and there's outside evil and inside evil and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, let it be said that Jamie Lee Curtis has a lot of fun with the last, uh, her last hurrahs, this character. If nothing else, she's a real joy to watch. Uh, so anyway, she's she's confronting this kid and, and also Allison about being with him because they, they're basically planning to run away together, this kid and Allison, uh, Corey. And the issue is, is that he also just keeps absolutely massacring people and so it's obviously not going to work out including we should say like all the all the teens from that gas station so you know, yes. of course he you know are, are of course they're all brutally eviscerated in one way or another yes the sequence eventually um it comes back to we haven't really talked about it but he works at this like sort of car repair shop that's in a junkyard they all end up there with the teens and he does dispatch them all in like classic horror movie like who's the real villain sort of situation um so anyway we're basically now finally at this like ending moment where he's stolen Michael Myers' mask and sort of like kind of knocked him on the ground and like kind of taking up the mantle in a way that like is certainly disrespecting the villain. We kind of get the sense that he's like had enough of this kid and enough of being pushed around. And so uh, we end up back. We know that a conversation is going to happen between Laurie Strode and Corey to start out with. Do you want to take us into that? Yeah, sure. So we uh, one of the threads that's running through this movie is Laurie sort of finishing her memoir that she's been working on. So she finally finishes it, and then she's sitting upstairs at, at her desk in her little writing nook, picks up the phone and says, like, I want to report a suicide. Hangs up the phone, pulls out this gun. We think, oh, oh, yeah. oh no, she's overcome by grief. I mean, the movie has not really set us up to believe this at all, but it's like, well, a lot of arbitrary things have happened in this. Maybe they're just going to have Lori kill herself. So it cuts away. We hear a gunshot. We see this splat come out of the door. Um, then in comes Corey. 
um, pan back to the mantelpiece where Laurie has actually just shot a pumpkin. Call back to the the credits of the original and you know most of the movie since. And so then they have, you know, she's just like, "Oh, you idiot! You didn't really think I would kill myself." Um, she shoots him, I think, twice, and then puts the rest of the bullets into the wall for some reason. But he's he's you know at this point, um, lying there, sort of bleeding out. Um, we think briefly uh, dead at the bottom of her stairs. And then, of course, we see a shape move in the background. So earlier in the movie, when Laurie had confronted Corey, Corey said something like, if I can't have Allison, no one will. Yeah. There's a lot of classic abuser language um, going on in the movie, and it's all about the cycle of trauma, et cetera, et cetera, that this movie is sort of trying to toy with, if not very convincingly. Um, and then in this scene, at, as they're on the ground, does Michael confront them while he's still alive? Yeah, we think he's dead, but then so Laurie realizes that you know she sees like a curtain billowing and she's like you know she knows michael's in the house because she has you know like michael dar at this point um so he goes up to Corey. michael goes to pick up the knife which Corey's left on the floor and Corey grabs his arm when he does it so he's not dead like a little sort of end of carry jump scare there they struggle with it for a little bit and then michael just kind of grabs his head and breaks his neck Oh, yes, that's right. Because what I was thinking of is that earlier in the scene, he stabs himself in the neck and says, so he repeats the line about if no one can have her and then stabs himself somehow. Yes. And that's supposed to make sense. Okay, right. And then Michael comes and Michael, yes, dispatches him, takes the mask back. Um, and so begins what the trailers for this movie sort of presented it as being a confrontation between the two of them once again. And it goes through a lot of weird sort of like, volleying around the house like they like at one point he like takes her hand and puts in the garbage disposal and tries to turn it on which is itself a callback to the previous halloween uh anniversary sequel in which she decapitates michael myers and you're going into this movie and this movie ignores the events of anything after halloween 2 if you don't recall so that's why that kind of makes sense that she's already killed him before and in fact in the he's also killed her um but i think uh in in the scene um you sort of like, what can she possibly do to Michael that would be more final than decapitating him? And this movie does come up with an answer. But first, we're sort of in the kitchen, and she's like kind of crucifying him. She's like, she puts like uh, knives through both of his hands and like kind of has them open on the thing. She can really handle big game. Um, and Michael, you know, she's she gets him down. She seems to cut one of his arteries at first, and then she slices his throat, and then for good measure. She slits his wrists the right way, as the movies have taught me. It's a very long and bizarre sequence that's like almost a little bit tender in a weird way. Yeah, and he comes back, you know, after you think he's dead at one point and grabs her around the throat and is choking her out. And then Allison comes back in, um, sees Corey dead, um, but, you know, comes around to her mom's side eventually. Yeah, grandma, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. At first, she's like horribly mad that she, that uh, Laurie Strode has killed uh, Corey, but later on, she sort of seems to have come around to it, have been being the right thing um, and realizing that Lori was right. But in a very weird sequence that was kind of fun almost, um, they take Michael and like they decide that he's not dead enough yet. So they strap his body to a, on top of a car, I believe. Yes. Yep. And like the entire townspeople form a line as if they're like going to a mass, like a giant funeral in the middle of the night. And they drive out to the um, uh, junkyard where, you know, Corey killed all the teens. They feed him into what I believe, if I remember my Stephen King correctly, is called a mangler. They put his body in there and like it is they really make pulp out of him. And you know, a decapitation, it's very nineties compared to this. Like it is like at a very thorough evisceration. You see his little head like get sort of squished up and like 
you know, mashed in the gears of this thing. Like it is, he's really most sincerely dead at this point. Yeah, I think that it's um, meant to be a weirdly sort of sweet moment, um, even though it's incredibly gruesome. So this movie is sort of, as Sam alluded to earlier, it, it does something different that he thinks is bad and I think is okay, but it, it, it like also wants to have, it wants to have this final climactic moment with Michael too, in a way that like, tonally feels a little bit off. Let's talk about how it brings the whole trilogy and this reboot cycle to a close, but let's take a break first. I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest, and more. Slate's podcasts cover major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode cultural mysteries. If we become part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash spoiler plus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at slate.com forward slash spoiler plus. And we're back. So we've been talking about Halloween Ends, how it does bring this whole new trilogy to a close. I'm sure there will be you know, more Halloween movies in another 10 or 5 or 3 years, whenever the IP needs to be revived. But as a fan of the series, like this sort of devotee of the series up to this point, how did you feel about this as a kind of at least temporary close to the cycle? I mean, I think it is a far less satisfying movie than Halloween H2O. It's just like from the late 90s and it's like an 80 minute sort of throwaway slasher kind of. But it like is a taut little movie in which she confronts Michael and decapitates him, like I said. And it's like so I guess they just like realized they couldn't do that movie again and wanted to do something different, which, as I said, I appreciate. I can't imagine that fans of the series and of this character are going to take very kindly to how they just like really like let this kid walk all over him and make him into this weak, feeble little thing only for Laurie Strode to feed him to a mangler. Um, but I, you know, I thought it was solid. It, it caught me by surprise. Um, I don't know that the movie makes any sense or works at all, but that is like fine. A lot of these movies do not. But that said, I thought it was uh, at least a shot at something vaguely original. In that way, I thought it was satisfying. Yeah, I've already made my feelings about it clear. I'd rather end on your up note. That is our show, so please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Christy Taiwa Macanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio at Slate. For Jeffrey Bloomer, I'm Sam Adams. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.